please turn with me in your Bible back to Acts chapter 11. I just want to spend just a few brief moments. Unlike last week, it will be a very brief sort of historical background. If you look at the screen here behind me, uh, you will see kind of a modern-day modern Google Earth image of the area, and you can see Jerusalem down here. And after Stephen is killed, martyred, in Acts chapter 7 in Jerusalem, we are told in Acts that people, believers, headed up to what is now Lebanon, Phoenicia, right there. They also headed further north to Antioch, which is right up there, and some also headed out to the island of Cyprus, which is out there. So Christians going directly north, and you have Christians going out to Cyprus to the side, and it is these believers as they go north that evangelize both Jews and non-Jews, see them converted, and start the church in Antioch. And the church in Antioch was, Antioch was maybe the third largest city in the Roman Empire, hundreds of thousands of people, extremely diverse in every kind of way you can imagine. And so this church becomes the first church that is truly uh, diversified compared to the Jerusalem church, which was all Jewish Christians, essentially. And this church, again, circling where Antioch is right there, that spot is where the first official missionaries are sent out. This is the first time in history that a local church is going to commission missionaries, cross-cultural missionaries, and say, we are sending you out specifically for the task of spreading the gospel to the Roman Empire around where you are. And if you look here, this is the map that Paul and Barnabas and John Mark are going to take on that first journey. Acts chapters 13 and 14 are going to cover this spot. So today we just cover from Antioch to Cyprus, the island. That's today. And then, Lord willing, the next couple of weeks, we will head up into southern Galatia and Asia Minor, where Pisidian Antioch, yes, another Antioch, Pisidian Antioch is, to be confusing, and Iconium and Derbe and Lystra. And then Paul and Barnabas are going to make their way back through those cities and head home at the end of chapter 14. The island of Cyprus, to zoom in here on a, Google, or a satellite image, you can see what it looks like. I don't know if you can see that very well, but that's what it looks like today uh, on a map. Here is... Uh, the starting point, we're told, was Salamis right there on the, um, on the coast. And then Paphos is where they end their trip, which is where much of today's story takes place. If I can zoom in here on Paphos, that city on the far end, you can sort of see what it looks like. You can see this area right here is called the Hall of, I think that's Theseus. And this is where the proconsul lived. Sergius Paulus lived in this place, and you, they've actually dug it up. This is where Sergius Paulus, the man in the story who is converted, this is where he was living. People speculate it's a large area. I mean, his, the building, some people, someone said it had dozens of rooms, but it is at least possible this very spot right here is where Paul appeared before um, Sergius Paulus, but we don't know for sure where in the building the meeting would have taken place. Again, as a historical background, several archaeological findings have backed up the existence of Sergius Paulus outside the Bible. One comes from Rome. I know this is fragmentary and you will not be able to read it, but if you look carefully, if you, I know you won't be able to read this, it says here L. Sergius Paulus right there. And this actually tells us that uh, a man by the name of L. Sergius Paulus was the curator of the Tiber River under Claudius uh, right at the same time that this Sergius Paulus would have been doing what he was doing, which fits with, with who he was. Also, uh, another inscription on the island, if I can jump back to the island, right here in a city, right here on the north part of the island, right here. Another inscription was found that speaks of uh, the, a proconsul named Paulus. It's got to be the same guy. A proconsul named Paulus. And so there, and there's actually two or three more, one or two other archaeological findings that have backed up this man 
uh, outside of Scripture. So, with all that in mind, we are going to look again at today's passage. So, look with me. Uh, let me. Let me sort of set this up with an outline first, and I will grant you today, I am borrowing big time from two different pastors to get my outline together. I'm adapting points from two different uh, ministers. So, here's the broad outline. Three things we can learn from the first missionaries. Three things we can learn from the first missionaries. Number one, they were sent by the church. Number two, they spoke the word. And number three, to get another S in here, they safeguarded the truth. They, sent, they were sent by the church, they spoke the word, and they safeguarded the truth. Let's talk for a moment more about this church that these first missionaries were sent out of. If you're back in chapter 11, look with me again in verse 25 and 26. Remember, Barnabas is sent to this church in Antioch, and it says, so Barnabas went, with, went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. Uh, for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So, Three subpoints here under they were sent by the church. This church that sent them was, number one, a well-taught church. Number two, an impartial church. And number three, a worshiping church. So this is all under primary point number one. They were sent by the church. It was a well-taught, impartial, and worshiping church. What do we mean by that? No, number one, a well-taught church. Here again, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, Barnabas goes to find Saul because he wants the church to be taught by someone like Saul who knows Scripture so well, and for a whole year, they taught a great many of the people. So this church had a solid year of Bible study under the Apostle Paul and under Barnabas. And then if you look at chapter 13 now, verse 1, 13, 1, it says, now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. And then it mentions some by name. So there was a large emphasis on solid teaching. So churches that care about missions should be churches that have been well taught by the word. But number two, and this is most relevant to our passage perhaps today, is uh, an impartial church. An impartial church. What, is, what does that mean? Well, look here at middle of verse 1 of chapter 13. It mentions Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Do you remember James, the book of James, written by Jesus' half-brother? James chapter 2, the first about nine verses. James says, some translations don't show favoritism, some don't show partiality. Don't show partiality, don't show favoritism. Then he gives an example. Suppose that you have your church gathering on a Sunday morning on the Lord's Day, and suppose someone with wonderfully costly clothes, someone of high prominent position in the community, wealthy individual, powerful individual, they come into your church, they're visiting, and also uh, a poor person comes in, someone who is, has no socioeconomic standing, no power in the community, is generally not cared about by the larger population. They both come to visit your church on a Sunday. Now, we all know what James is going to say next, don't we? Don't show favoritism to one over the other based on their dress, their background, their power, their economic resources. Don't do that because that is to act like the world that prizes people based on physical attractiveness and their charisma and their power and their wealth and what they can do for me. 
I mean, you know, this creeps into the church, this thinking. There could be a tendency to say, well, let's be extra nice and let's really reach out to this person because they might be able to help us out in some way, which is a worldly way of thinking. And then there's Jesus who says, bring the little children unto me, bring the despised unto me. When blind Bartimaeus, who everyone despised in the crowd, calls out for Jesus, Jesus stops the whole entourage and goes to see the blind beggar because Jesus doesn't show partiality. He doesn't judge based on the flesh. He doesn't make worldly assessments and worldly judgments about other people. He sees image bearers of God, sinners in need of redemption, and those who are saved in his own atonement. But Jesus does not show partiality. This church did not either. Why do I say that? Well, look, Barnabas was a Levite from the island of Cyprus, this island right here. He was, a, he was a Levite from the island of Cyprus. He was a wealthy landowner. He actually sold a lot of land, remember, and gave it to the church in Acts chapter 4. He was a wealthy Jewish Levite man. He was also, though, from out of town, so he was probably pretty familiar with Greek culture and Hellenistic culture. Well, who's next? Simeon, who was called Niger. Niger means, in Latin, black or dark. Uh, this man would have been certainly the first black uh, missionary in, the ch in church history, along with Lucius of Cyrene, both from Africa, and both of them uh, of darker complexion. These guys have a different ethnic background from the church in, uh, from, from, the, from the Jewish believers beforehand. Also, you've got this guy, and this fascinated me. I'd never stopped to think about this guy, Menean. Now, do you see there, it says, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. That's Herod Antipas. If you, we won't go back into the Herods <laughs> from last week. Herod Antipas is the one who saw Jesus in his hearing, killed John the Baptist. Herod Antipas, now get this. Menean, this guy is one of the first missionaries ever sent out officially by a local church. And it says he was a lifelong friend. I'm forgetting the Greek word. It's some fancy word, something tafos. I don't remember the word. But the word literally means uh, someone who had been adopted into the family and raised with someone. This guy grew up as intimate, you know, you know, friends you have from preschool and kindergarten, you know, you can still remember one or two and you might run into one, two, someone you've known your whole life. This man, Menean, grew up, maybe sharing the same crib, I don't know, as Herod, Herod, Herod Antipas, the Herod who becomes such a treacherous man, a powerful man, a, a man who kills John the Baptist and then helps have Jesus put to death. Menean was a lifelong friend raised with him perhaps in the same very home. Does the Lord not in His grace pull brands out of the fire and make some incredible recipients of His undeserved grace? I mean, out of the same home. And so, this man no doubt would have had some powerful friends. He would have been in his 60s, judging by the age that Herod would have been had he, had he still been around. So, th this is a man in his 60s who would have been powerful, kind of like Moses, growing up in Pharaoh's palace, and yet he forsakes all of that becomes a despised follower of Jesus and takes such a different path from his childhood friend Herod. Just say to you right now, do not let your background hold you back from the Lord Jesus. It does not matter who you were raised by, who your parents were. It doesn't matter if you grew up in a horribly, horribly abusive home or in a horrible upbringing. If your parents were divorced at a young age and you've had to process a lot of the pain and the difficulty of that, in the midst of that, the Lord creates great trophies of His grace, sometimes coming out of very unpromising beginnings. And so Menean here comes out of that background of, 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 of deceit and treachery and violence and power and becomes a follower of the Lord Jesus and a missionary. And finally, at the end of the list, you have Saul. Now, can I just remind you of something incredible in the Lord's sovereignty? Think here, think. Let's go back. Why was Stephen being killed? 
partly because of Saul, right? Pre-Christian Saul. Saul, raised at the feet of Gamaliel, the Pharisee, trained in Jerusalem, advancing beyond many of his own age in Judaism, more zealous for the fathers than anybody he knew his age. And what happens? What, what, what happens? Paul, Saul, approves of the execution of Stephen. Now think, he, he, in a wicked way, he helps Stephen be murdered, and Stephen's murder leads to the dispersion of Christians, which leads to them going north to Antioch, planning the church. Saul becomes a Christian, ends up becoming a member of the Antioch church that he accidentally started by killing a Christian in his past life, and then he gets sent out as a missionary on the first mission trip of the church that he, he founded. He's, it, Saul's the founding pastor of this church by martyrdom, by, by martyring Stephen. So in the mystery of God's sovereignty, Stephen, the, the, the Lord takes Saul's most evil moment, turns it back by his grace, starts a church through his evil, and then uses that church by his grace to send him on a cross-cultural mission trip. That is astonishing. So again, don't let your past hold you back from the gospel of Jesus. Jesus can change you right now today in a way that you will never be the same. And whatever has occurred to you in your past, the Lord can turn it back for good. Even the dark spots on the mosaic of your life can be used to make a beautiful picture of God's redeeming grace. Don't ever buy the lie that it's too late for me. I'm too lost. The Lord could never use me. I've gone too far. I've strayed too long. It's too late for me. That is a lie from Satan. And if you will turn and embrace Jesus right now, the Lord can use you in amazing ways right where you are today. So this church was impartial. It didn't matter your skin color. It didn't matter your ethnic heritage or background. It didn't matter if you were a Levite, formerly a Pharisee. It didn't matter if you were raised with Herod, the evil ruler. It didn't matter if you were from North Africa or from uh, Jerusalem or from Cyprus. doesn't matter. They are all equal in Christ in their salvation. And number three on these points is also a worshiping church. Look with me here at verse two and three. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the, Lord, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them, that after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So we see here three things. Number one, they're worshiping. Number two, they're fasting. Number three, they are praying. This church was committed to the glory of God, and they were all about worship, worshiping the Lord, fasting and praying. I'll just mention fasting, and we'll be honest, probably most of us don't do a lot of fasting in our Christian life. I understand that, but let me just mention something about fasting. It'd be another day to talk in depth about all the ways fasting can be used, but one of the ways can be when there is a massive decision that needs to be made in your life. It, it can be absolutely right and good not just to pray, but to also go to choose to go without meals in order to clear your mind, focus on the Lord, and show a desperation and seek clarity on important decisions in your life, which is what the church seems to have been doing at this time. And they were also devoted to praying to the Lord. And we're told the Holy Spirit said in verse 2, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now, in a future week, I want to talk more about prophecy. Today is not that day. But this kind of prophecy, I would argue, does not happen in this way today. But this is when the Lord would speak special, fresh revelation, just straight words from the Lord. And so there were prophets in the church, and no doubt one of the prophets during this prayer meeting, during the fasting, said, the Holy Spirit is telling me, prophet speaking, I think Isaiah, that the Lord is saying, 
set apart Barnabas and Saul. So this first missions uh, trip was initiated by God the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit chose Barnabas and Saul to be sent out on this trip. Okay, number two main point of the sermon is that, so number one, the first missionaries, they were sent by the church. Number two, they spoke the word. Now look back here on this map on the screen here. So you can see they land first on the coast with Salamis, and then they would have made their way across the island, avoiding a mountain range in the middle. So they, went, they would have likely gone south across all those cities. And we know they ended up on the other coast at Paphos, which is where Sergius Paulus is. So let me reread this part. Verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. That's on the, uh, that's on the coast near uh, the Mediterranean Sea. And from there they sailed to Cyprus, the island. When they arrived at Salamis, the coastal city, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues, plural, of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. Let me pause there. Do you notice the word synagogues is plural, and it's just one city? You can read about this. There was a large Jewish population on Cyprus at this time, and there were, Salamis was a city of, I think, over 100,000 from what we can tell, and there would have been numerous synagogues. And so, uh, Paul and Barnabas show up, and they decide to go speak to a place where the Old Testament would already be believed, and they start using the Old Testament as a bridge to preach the gospel. Look at verse 6. When they had gone through the whole island, as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain uh, magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Now, before we get too far into this interesting character, which I look forward to talking about in just a moment, let me just give, again, three points underneath the speaking of the word. So three things we should know about missionaries who speak the word. Number one, speaking the word is essential to missions. Speaking the word is essential to missions. What do I mean by that? We are all for missionaries going to a place that's in great need and meeting physical needs of individuals. Absolutely. In fact, if you look at the history of the world in the last 2,000 years, this is not to boast as Christians, this is just a fact. Hospitals exist in the world. Orphanages exist in the world largely due to Christian influence in the world, uh, if you look back. And so it is absolutely right and good for Christians to care for the physical needs of individuals they are trying to reach. That is a wonderful way to reach people with the gospel. You can think of Jesus feeding the 5,000, meeting their physical needs, but also then saying, if you think that bread is wonderful, I in the bread of life. So Jesus takes the physical needs and meets them and then uses that as an illustration of the spiritual needs, the spiritual hungers that can only be met in Jesus. And so, this is important, I'm not trying to be controversial, just a statement, a missionary who only wants to do physical needs meeting and does not want to speak the truth of the gospel is not a true and faithful missionary. Yes, you must do deeds of service, absolutely. Of course, you don't go to a starving person and preach the gospel and not care about their physical body. Of course not. But if all we do is sort of social gospel stuff that you might know. Remember the social gospel in the last century? It's, it, it started off wanting to preach the gospel and take care of needs, and it ended up just becoming a, just sort of social is what they should have called it, because the gospel sort of disappeared. Over time, meeting needs will make you popular. Preaching the truth will not make you popular. 
And so there's, a, there's an inherent pressure over time for missionaries to minimize the truth claims and to maximize the deeds of service. And we should never make it an either or. We should make it a both and. Uh, and and the, the old statement, uh, preach the gospel, if necessary, use words. I really don't like that statement. I know people, what they mean by it, and I still don't like, like the statement. The, the saying preach the gospel, if necessary, use words, is like saying feed the hungry, if necessary, use food. Uh, you cannot do it. Uh, preaching the gospel inherently involves the words, the good news, the euangelion, right? The fancy word. Good, we, Christians are evangelicals, euangelions. We are, you know, the word angel is there, the messenger of good news. We are messengers of good tidings. We are heralds of good news. So I love you. I, I care about your needs physically, but let me tell you about far more important needs. You know, John Piper's famously said, Christians exist to relieve all the suffering we can, especially eternal suffering. And that should put it, the proportions into place. We should care about all suffering, but especially eternal suffering. And so missionaries must speak the word. Speaking the word is essential to missions. Number two, speaking the word requires godly and discerning missionaries. Speaking the word requires godly and discerning uh, missionaries. Here, here's what I mean. The church in Antioch, did not say, okay, we got a, we got a big missions trip, we're going to do church planting, this is going to be a multi-year endeavor, let's find the least equipped people in our church and let's just send them out because, you know, that's not all that important and, you know, at least they can say something true and I'm sure they'll do some good. No, 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 what, who do they pick? I mean, let's just think about it. If the Apostle Paul is a member of your church, do you really want to see him go? The answer is no, you want him to stay. He's like, He's the Apostle Paul. He's going to write half the New Testament. Come on, we want to keep Paul on staff at our church. But no, the Apostle Paul, the great theologian of the first century, and maybe of all the centuries, the Apostle Paul, he is the one sent on missions. Why? Because missionaries must be godly and discerning. They must be knowledgeable. Now, I'll just be honest with you here. This is not an insult to missions. This is a, this is a fact. This is why missionaries must be so equipped. It is through missions and evangelism. Please hear me out on this. Hear me out. It is through missions and evangelism that liberalism is most likely to enter in doctrinally. This is not an insult to missions. This is showing you how important missions is. You understand the difference? Think about it. If you are, say you're in a Muslim context, there is going to be a pressure to call God Allah. There's going to be a pressure to quote from the Quran because the Quran mentions Jesus being virgin born. So there's, there's going to be a temptation to go, I'm going to, you know, I can build a bridge. I'm going to quote the Quran back to them and you say it's kind of reliable and I, we'll call God Allah because we don't want to cause confusion. And before long, you're not really converting people to Christianity. You're just converting them to a, to a new form of Islam. So my, my point is this. In, in evangelism and missions, we always want to see people one to Christ. And the temptation will be, I'm just telling you, the temptation will be, to make the message more palatable so that more people say yes. And the problem is, at the end of the day, what people are saying yes to may not be the gospel anymore. The exclusivity of Jesus is not going to be popular anywhere in the world. So we need our best people to be missionaries. We need those who study their Bibles and have conviction, have a backbone of steel doctrinally, and have the compassion outwardly of someone who is very caring. It's, it's an amazing combination of gifts that a missionary needs to be tender and loving and compassionate and also non-compromising in their doctrine and to have those things married together. That's why the Antioch church sends their best out on missions. Paul and Barnabas and also John Mark who will later write the gospel of Mark. So they send the best with them because 
speaking the word requires godly and discerning missionaries. Number three, speaking the word involves practical wisdom. Speaking the word involves practical wisdom. Look again at verse four, verse five. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. Okay, now I will grant you that there's also a theological as well as a practical reason. The theological reason that they started at the synagogue is because Paul famously said to the Jew first and also to the Greek, right? So Paul wants to put priority on Jewish evangelism first. When he goes into a city, if there is a synagogue, guess where Paul's going first? He's going to the synagogue. If they don't have a synagogue, he might try to find, you know, a God-fearing person who's sort of on the border between Jew and Gentile. He starts there, and then he moves to the more blatantly Gentile or pagan peoples, and will speak to them. And if there's no synagogue, he just goes, you know, Mars Hill. He just goes for it in Athens and preaches to the pagan philosophers. But Paul starts there for a theological reason, but there's also a practical reason. Is Paul Jewish? Yes. Is Barnabas Jewish? Yes. Do they both know their Old Testaments? Yes. Are they going into a place where Paul would be naturally respected? Yeah, he grew up at the feet of Gamaliel, the most famous Jewish rabbi of their day. All Paul has to say is, hey, you know, I'm Saul the Pharisee. You remember me? You've heard of me in the news, no doubt. You know, I was like the great Jew. And, you know, I was trained at Gamaliel. And Paul can use that as a doorway to get in. And they say, hey, Paul, why don't you share a message like they're going to do next Sunday, Lord willing. And Paul goes, I will share a message you will never forget. And so Saul starts with the Old Testament, starts telling the story, and they're all nodding yes. And then suddenly it takes a turn toward Jesus, and people are not quite sure what to think. But there is a practical wisdom aspect here. They are going where they know there could be an open door, and they're using wisdom to know where to start with the gospel and where to move from there. So speaking the word involves practical wisdom. Now the last major point of the sermon, they safeguarded the truth. So the first missionaries, they were sent by the church, they spoke the word, and now they safeguarded the truth. They end up here at Paphos, and, and these are some interesting characters I want to spend a few minutes talking about. Look again at verse 6. When they had gone through the whole island, as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought, sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, or Elimus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. Now, I'm going to pause before I read this quote again. Just for, I mean, I, I just, these historical things, I'm just going to throw another one in just because. Just Remember Josephus from last week? You're like, we, we know. Josephus, real quick, just real quick. He just mentions in one of his, in one of his Jewish, his work on the antiquities of the Jews, non-Christian first century historian, he mentions a man named Simon and a friend, and he says there was a, he was a Jew by birth, a Cypriot, he was from Cyprus, and one who pretended to be a magician. So you have another first century confirming person who said there were Jewish magicians on Cyprus. It's amazing, isn't that? So even Josephus says, yeah, there were, there were Jewish people on Cyprus who claimed to be magicians. It's kind of this interesting thing that was going on, and one of them here is a man named Bar-Jesus, or Elimus. Now, I cannot help but think there is a play being made on his name. You, you know Jesus was a common name, actually, in the first century? Amongst Jewish men, it was like in the top 10 most popular names for a Jewish man. So this is not Jesus, our Jesus, this is just a Jesus. He was the son of Jesus. He was bar Jesus. And Saul's about to say, I think you're the son of someone else. How about you're bar devil? That's what you are. 
That's what, that's what Paul's about to say. So, I want us to think for a moment here. So when I say that uh, the first missionary safeguarded the truth, I will grant you this right now. Most of us, if we did not know this statement was in the Bible, would not think it should be in the Bible. But it is in the Bible, and it's not Paul losing his temper. Because what he said, he said while filled with the Spirit. Are you ready? So, American Christianity has almost no place for this kind of talk, but it's in the Bible. So let me read this in its fullness, verse 9 again. Paul looks at this magician, but Saul, who was called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now, real quick, this is, I think this is important. Paul is dealing with two non-Christians in Paphos, two of them. One of them is this governor, Sergius Paulus, who is a powerful and intelligent man, but not, a, not even close to Christian. This guy is not even, you know, a God-fearer or, you know, a, a proselyte. He is not close to Christian. The other man who works with him is Bar-Jesus, who is a Jewish magician. Now, he calls for Paul and Barnabas to come to his place. Remember I showed you a picture of his place, the, bar the, the archaeological remains. He calls Paul, no doubt, to that place, the house of Thusis, where he lived. And Paul and Barnabas and John Mark show up. And this man, for some reason, is intrigued. And he wants to know more about the message that he's heard they've been proclaiming throughout his island. Tell, us, tell me your message. So they preach the gospel to this man. They preach Jesus' death for sinners, his burial, his resurrection, fulfilling prophecies to the Jewish people written centuries ahead of time. Jesus is the Messiah of the Jews, and he has salvation available for all who will turn and believe. And this man, Sergius Paulus, this intelligent man, is intrigued. He's leaning in. He's curious. He's asking questions, no doubt. He's leaning towards them. And suddenly, this magician, this man practicing black magic, not modern magicians like a magic trick. This is black magic, the occult. This is the demonic Bar-Jesus comes and says, no, 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 Th this is nonsense, that's not what Scripture means, this is not true, and he tries to talk Sergius Paulus out of believing the gospel. Why? Well, one thing is probably pretty clear. Bar-Jesus would be out of a job if his boss became a Christian. Do you see? What does he do? He practices black magic. If Sergius Paulus becomes a Christian, Bar-Jesus is thinking, this is not going to end well for me, I'm fired. He's not going to want me doing black magic around here if he becomes a Christian. So he's probably trying to protect his job, but he's arguing vehemently against the gospel. Now, this is the part that is so critical. Paul is talking to two non-Christians, and he talks to both of them in completely different ways. Now listen, this needs, we need discernment. I don't know about you, but there are Christians who... Look at people like Sergius Paulus and see a potential friend, which is what he was. But then Paul looks at Bar-Jesus and sees a real enemy, like a, a, a serious enemy. And Paul calls one a son of the devil, uses the strongest words, filled with the Spirit. And the other one, he doesn't rebuke, he just invites him to Jesus. And what makes the difference? Well, I, I would suggest a lot of Christians today have 
no place ever for calling a false teacher a son of the devil, an enemy of all unrighteousness. I mean, if, just to, if I say, like, I believe Joel Osteen is a false teacher, very obvious to me that he preaches a false prosperity gospel. I think his teaching is wicked. I think it hurts people. I think that his popularity is an indictment on our culture, the fact that he has one of the largest churches in America. When I say that, some people think, you are not loving. And I'm saying, there is a place for looking at someone who is twisting the clear truth of God to, to people's destruction and to say with clear and unabashed words, that is false teaching and we should not follow it. I can list a bunch of people with him, okay? He's just an easy target. But if you are uncomfortable with me even saying that, I would ask you to consider this passage. Is there ever a place, and the answer is there is, because the Spirit filled Paul and he said these words. Is, do, you, do you ever use those words to describe false teachers in the church? Ever. In the last year, have you described anyone as a demonic false teacher in your mind or out loud? If you never describe people that way, I would say this passage should challenge you to be more biblical, in regards to people who are twisting the straight ways of the Lord, and to be more direct about that. Now let me flip it around. Most of us, are, I think Kevin Young said, most of us have one gear. We're either like, ah, everyone's a son of the devil all the time, or we just think no one is really dangerous to the church. You know what I'm saying? So some Christians just say, oh, I'm sure he means well, and he's got a nice smile and teeth, and I'm sure he's great. You know? So that's one, that's one response. The other response is just to call everybody a son of the devil. Well, I disagree with this person on one tiny doctrinal issue, false teacher, son of the devil, okay? Now, do you see? We tend to have by personality one, or two, one of two speeds. Some of us are critical to a fault, and some of us are gracious to a fault. Do you see what I'm saying? And so, your natural personality, you, you need to know, ask yourself in the mirror, like, honestly, which is your reputation? Do you tend to be overly harsh and overly critical towards people you disagree with theologically? Or do you tend to just be overly compassionate to a fault? Oh, I'm sure they mean well, and I know that they said that there's no trinity, but, I mean, they seem nice Unitarians. I mean, I don't know. I mean, wh where, where are you at on that? I mean, the, the, the person who showed up on my door from the Jehovah's Witnesses, they seem so nice and compassionate and, and polite. I mean, I know that they think Jesus is a created being, but is it, it's, I don't want to, you know, it's not a big deal. You see, that's compassion to a fault. It's not compassion anymore. It's actually supporting falsehood. So, Here's what I want all of us to spend some time thinking about. We should be safeguards of the truth, whether we're missionaries or not. Is your speed always condemning or always excusing? And I would say that the truth is somewhere in the middle, as it often is. And I, I would challenge us, where are the Sergius Paulus people in our lives that we are going to be compassionate, trying to win them to the truth? And then where are those who need strong words, filled with the Spirit, strong words, in order to rebuke false doctrine. And whichever of those two you feel more uncomfortable with, that's where you need to grow. That's where I need to grow. Whichever of those two is more uncomfortable it is an area where we should challenge ourselves and we ourselves should grow. But I, I can't end on that note. I have to end right here. So look again at verse 11. And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately a mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Now just, just think about this for a second. Was Saul struck blind right before his conversion? This is not final judgment. He is actually showing mercy. He's giving Bar-Jesus time to repent. It's a temporary blinding, just like Paul himself experienced, and hopefully he will see that his magic doesn't have the power. The Holy Spirit has more power than his magic because he can't make himself see, right? And so he goes, okay, the Holy Spirit is the true powerful one. He's the true God. And maybe 
Elymas, maybe, he repents and believes. There's no indication that he does, but at least that could be the hope. But look what happens to the proconsul, the governor of the island, verse 12. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Again, then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. When his friend here, Bar-Jesus, was struck blind, that got his full attention, Sergius Paulus. He said, wow, this is the real thing. But that's not mainly what he's amazed by. You know what it says? He was astonished, not mainly at the miracle, he was astonished at what? The teaching of the Lord. What had captivated him was not the miracle, it was the message of Jesus. And he thought, my sins can be forgiven? Not through the Roman pantheon of gods, not through self-atonement, not through harming myself or doing some sort of great work or some great action or some great deed or some great life that I might live. You mean my sins, my sins, can be forgiven by simple faith and repentance turning to Jesus? And Paul and Barnabas say yes. And in that moment, he believed in Jesus. And we don't get more details. No doubt he would have been baptized and all those kinds of things, but he is converted. So again, if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, there is freedom, forgiveness, life, and joy to be had by simple trust in the person and work of Jesus. I'm going to give you a brief moment of silence before I pray. Think about anything, a word of application from the sermon that is relevant to you, and just pray about it for a moment, and then I will close us in prayer. We'll sing. Lord, give us two things, at least. Give us discernment and courage when it comes to someone who boldly is twisting your straight paths and clearly proclaiming false doctrine and the false gospel. And help us to be bold when we engage, when we try to rescue people from the grip of a false teacher. And there are many on TV and on the internet. And Lord, also give us tremendous love and compassion for lost people who are seeking in some sense something, even if they don't know fully what, and help us to lay the truth in front of them and pray the Spirit to regenerate them and for them to begin to seek you for who you are, like Sergius Paulus in this story. And God, I pray for missions. I know in this last year it's been hard to travel almost at all, but I pray for those in our church serving in other parts of the world and some of the difficulties that they have encountered, that you would be with them and support them in this time. I pray for those who may soon be traveling to other parts of the world to serve, that you would equip them and help them and guide them as they make those decisions. And I pray as perhaps things begin to open up more in the year to come, that you would open up more avenues in which our church can send out others on both short and long-term missions to help those in the world who desperately need the good news that we so abundantly possess here in our country. As you bow your heads, I am going to read the short book, Second John, just a short chapter. And as you listen, just a couple things to know. The sisters here likely refer to local churches, their children to the members of those churches, and listen to the contrast between truth and error in this short book. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, 
but also all who know the truth because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing to you a new command, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Heavenly Father, thank you for the members of this church who I know know your truth and love your truth and desire humbly to obey your commands, to reach others with the truth because the truth sets us free. The truth gives clarity and life. It gives joy and peace, the truth of God. It sanctifies your people. And God, I, I pray that we would be guarded against false teachers and false teachings, that we would love the truth too much to see it distorted, twisted, that we would care enough for others to preserve and safeguard your truth. It's the most valuable thing imaginable is the truth that is in your word. Help us to preserve it. The church is called the pillar and the buttress of the truth. And help us to preserve it. Help us to love it. Help us to pray your truth, to sing your truths. Help us to speak your truths, live your truths. And when we sin, help us to repent and to run to the truth of the gospel of forgiveness. Please use us this week to reach those around us. Give us patience, grace, love, forgiveness, and I pray this all in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. You are dismissed.